Well, take your Bibles this morning, open them to Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. And this morning, I know it's Palm Sunday, but we have been in a series, The Final Day of Jesus. And so looking at that final day of his life. And today, we are going to wrap this up by looking at his crucifixion. And so we're going to focus on that rather than his entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 23. We're going to look at verses 26 through 43 this morning. So would you please stand in honor of God's word as it is read. Before I read, would you pray with me the prayer on the screen? Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Amen. As they led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. You may be seated. I forgot. The kids were supposed to take the palm branches for Palm Sunday for their lesson. I apologize. A gospel song says that Jesus on the cross could have called 10,000 angels. Why didn't he? Isn't it natural to want to fight to preserve your life? Why didn't Jesus? We had an, ex an exciting moment in the office this week. Um, I've only seen it happen one other time and nobody else saw it, so it didn't matter. But this week, as I was sitting at my desk, all of a sudden I heard Missy make a loud noise and she said, there is a mouse staring at me from under my desk. 
All the other guys were out of the office, so I got the fun duty of, uh, of dealing with it. And lo and behold, it had gone running across one of those sticky pads. And I've only seen one other mouse in the office um, over four and a half years. So um, we have a company that treats all that, so it's very rare to see that. And uh, it was stuck there, and I thought it was dead. And lo and behold, when I went to move it, I found out it was not dead yet. It was still alive. But they say something about rodents, that if you trap a rodent... And it gets caught, and it isn't killed. If it's caught by a leg or a tail or something like that, that it will, to save its life, it will chew through its leg just to get free. Now, that may sound gross, but even humans, we fight to preserve our lives, don't we? It's just natural instinct to want to fight to preserve our life. And yet, here we have Jesus who is being crucified And we ask the question, why doesn't Jesus save himself? And today, God wants us to examine the reasons why Jesus doesn't save himself and discover what that means for you and for me. It is the question, at least one of the questions that is asked in this passage. Oh, maybe there isn't a question mark after it, but why doesn't Jesus save himself? If you paid attention as you read through here, you'll notice that that is the charge often made to him once he is crucified. If we just start, we could start at verse 35. It says, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers came up, mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. It says, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Why in the world, if he is the Messiah, if he is the Savior, if he is the Chosen One, all the titles, they assume that if he's really that, then he would save himself. Why doesn't Jesus save himself? There's many reasons that we see throughout the story. Let me walk you through them. The first is this. Jesus doesn't save himself because that's not God's plan. Now, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and it's not in this passage in particular, but we know that as we've gone through Luke's Gospel that God's plan for the Savior was that he would suffer and that he would die In fact, we could go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 22, after Peter confesses that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember then Jesus starts teaching, and he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. If if we would read on to Luke chapter 18, verse 31, it says, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Everything that was written in the prophets. In other words, this wasn't just Jesus' plan. This has been God's plan of salvation down through all the ages. Jesus is described as the Lamb of God crucified from the foundation of the world. And so, Jesus doesn't save himself because that's not God's plan, and he knows that. 
as we start getting closer to this passage of Scripture, we discover Jesus doesn't save himself because he's not guilty. Sometimes people, even in our culture, are accused of something that they didn't do. Back in September of last year, Valentino Dixon was released from prison after serving 17 years for a murder that they determined he did not do. He had claimed he was innocent. Another person had even said that he did it, that he was the one who shot the gun and had killed another person, but he spent 17 years in prison. It's interesting the way that the truth came to light. Valentino Dixon, while he was in prison, um, he had a hobby. His hobby was drawing, pencil drawing. And he discovered that he loved to draw pictures of golf courses. And so he got really good at it, and the, the warden at the prison saw one of his drawings of a golf course and asked him to do him a favor. He said, would you draw for me a pencil drawing of the 12th hole of Augusta National? And so he made a pencil sketch. His sketches were so good for a person who had never been to the golf courses, just from pictures and from TV, his sketches were so good that they caught the attention of Golf Digest, a magazine. And they decided to run a story on this guy. As they were running the story, they were just learning a little bit about him. In the process, they realized how little evidence there was. And they put that as part of the story, that he had always claimed he was innocent, that he was not the one who shot the gun, although he was illegally the owner of the gun, but that somebody else had shot it. And they put it in the story. A student at Georgetown University, a law student, reads Golf Digest, reads the story, hears about it, thinks that would be an interesting school project. So a team of them start researching this guy's history. Eventually, they realize there just isn't a case against this guy. They call the DA. The DA sets up an investigation. Lo and behold, all the charges are dropped. And he's released last September after 17 years in prison. He was innocent. Jesus doesn't save himself because he knows he's not guilty. And he doesn't fight to say he's not guilty. In fact, as the scriptures say, like a lamb, before the slaughter, his mouth was silent. He doesn't fight for it. He rests in his innocence. And what you have to understand is that in Luke's gospel, this innocence is significant. Because can you imagine Nowadays, 2,000 years later, you walk in the church, you see a cross at the front of the church, and you think, well, that's just normal. Lots of churches have crosses at the front. There are probably some of you here today who you have a necklace, and it has a cross hanging on it. You're very comfortable. We're all comfortable with this image of a cross. We've seen it before. But can you imagine back in Jesus' time when the cross is considered the worst form of capital punishment that there is? And then you're, Luke is going to write a gospel in which he tells people, Jesus is the Savior who was on death row and died under capital punishment. You should believe in him. It's not going to go anywhere. And so he's so careful in the entire last day of Jesus to show his innocence. You would discover if we go back and read a few verses earlier, Jesus is innocent at his trial. In fact, it's interesting. Luke highlights it back in chapter 23, verse 4. He says that Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. When you get to verse 14 of chapter 23, he says, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Verse 15, 
Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Verse 22, for the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Luke wants you to understand something under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus at his trial was innocent. Then when it comes to the fact where Finally, they condemn him to death to make the crowds happy because they're yelling crucify. Luke wants to make sure that you understand in his crucifixion, Jesus is innocent. So he has, you'll notice in verse 32 that we read, says two other men both what? Criminals. Isn't it interesting? There's three people crucified that day on crosses, but only two of them are called criminals. Those two are criminals. And Luke's very clear to point that out. These men are criminals, but the man in the middle on the cross is no criminal. In fact, it takes one of the criminals to highlight that. As you go down to verse 40 of our passage today, it says, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And if that wasn't enough, Luke highlights in his death that Jesus is innocent. We haven't read this passage for today, but if we were to go on reading, it says, starting in verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. In his trial, in his crucifixion, in his death, it is repeated over and over, Jesus is innocent. And he doesn't fight the system. He rests knowing he is perfectly obeying the will of the Father. So he doesn't save himself. Jesus doesn't save himself also because he is not in ultimate danger. It's interesting, if we were to go back to Luke chapter 12, verse 5, Jesus tells his disciples something. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is not in ultimate danger. He is in physical danger. No doubt, you can read through you could go online, type in medical description of Jesus' crucifixion, and you can read about how awful and gruesome a crucifixion is. But Jesus understands something, that while he's facing physical danger, he is not in ultimate danger. And he makes that quite clear at the end of this passage, when the one who's dying next to him on the cross says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. He knows he is not in ultimate danger. In fact, as he dies, what does he say? His, his prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He has no fear for his soul. He knows that he is in the Father's hands. We have those experiences sometimes, don't we? I remember um, years ago, I had a, a CD by Larnell Harris, and it had a song. It was entitled, Child, It's Only Thunder. The lyric says, I remember a time when I was younger 
When the north wind blew so hard, it shook the trees out in the yard, and the sky drew dark, and the sound of the thunder. I was headed for cover. My little feet were running to the safest place they know, my daddy's arms. And daddy, he said, child, it's only thunder. There's no need to be afraid, for as quickly as it started, the storm's going to pass away. But if you're needing peace of mind, come on and sit here by my side, and we'll appreciate the wonder, child. It's only thunder. I don't know about you. When I was a kid, I was afraid of the thunder. I can remember we had a set of, I, I had bunk beds. They were, I think, two generations old by the time I got them. And uh, I sleep in the bunk beds, and when a thunderstorm would come up and the house would rattle from the thunder, I would lay there in bed at night, and I would just start picking my head up and off the pillow, and I would just start yelling, Mama, Mama, Mama. And I just got as loud and went as long as I could until my mom at the other end of the house would come down, make her way down there, and pick me up and take me to her room because I was terrified. And then the worst thing was when you go through the dark living room from my bedroom to their bedroom, to go through the dark living room and to have it lightning and light up the room and then a boom of thunder. That was terrifying. But you and I know something. The thunder doesn't hurt anyone, does it? Jesus knew something. One reason he doesn't save himself is he knows he is not in ultimate danger. Physical danger, no doubt. And does he dread it? Yes. And we should never make light of the physical suffering people go through. But he understands something. He is not in ultimate danger. So he doesn't save himself. Jesus doesn't save himself also because he's not the one who needs saving. And I think that's what's most ironic in this passage. Jesus is the one being crucified, but he isn't the one who needs saving. We find three groups of people in this passage who do need saving. The first one we discover, starting at the beginning of the passage of verse 26, is they led him away. They see Simon from Cyrene who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him, made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Now this is an interesting little prophecy. It's even written in the frame of prophecy, and it quotes the Old Testament prophets here when he says, They will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. In other words, we want to die, and we want to die quickly, is what that little quote means. But he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, which was directed towards the women who are mourning, but it's also a prophetic way of saying, All the inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to weep. And probably what Jesus is referring to here is that He's hinted at it earlier. They have rejected the Son of God, and this generation, he says, will not pass away until they face the wrath of God. And what happens is in 70 AD, the Romans come in and lay siege to Jerusalem. And it is a pitiful sight what happens. There's a historian, an ancient historian, a Jewish historian named Josephus, and he writes about the history of the Jews from 2,000 years ago. And he describes the siege of Jerusalem. And this is what it says. Josephus describes one gruesome episode where a starving woman whose food was repeatedly stolen by certain city defenders decided that since she didn't have regular food, she took her own infant 
and put him in a pot and cooked him. The soldiers outside her home smelled something cooking. And so they knocked on the door and said, we smell food. That food belongs to us. She said, that's fine. If you want to eat it, it's my baby's son. I'm getting ready to eat him myself. And as the story goes, the soldiers ran out of that place disgusted by what they saw. He goes on to report, she ate half of him. The guards ran away. And when this report went out to the city, those who were starving longed for death and considered blessed those who were already dead. Those are the words of the historian Josephus in ancient Israel. Jesus says, weep for yourselves. Why? Because the daughters of Jerusalem needed deliverance from the impending judgment that was coming. The people of Jerusalem would face a terrible siege. Not one stone of the city left on another. Of course, they're not the only ones who need saving. It's interesting. You get down to the soldiers here. If you pick up at verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the other criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said to them, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The city of Jerusalem needs saving, deliverance from the impending judgment of God. The soldiers who are crucifying Jesus need forgiving from the ignorance of their sin as they crucify the Son of God. And if that isn't enough, then two criminals who are dying next to Jesus on a cross, they both need saving. The one cries out, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. But the other one says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he knows he needs the promise of paradise. Isn't it ironic? The one, on the, the one dying on the middle cross isn't the one who needs saving. The people of Jerusalem will need deliverance. The soldiers need the forgiveness. The criminal needs the hope of paradise. But the one who's dying on the cross isn't the one who needs saving. So why doesn't Jesus call 10,000 angels and get off the cross? Because he isn't the one who needs saving. It's everyone else who does. And isn't that still true today? That the Jesus who died on the cross, the reason he didn't save himself was so that he could save you and me. Isn't that the point? Jesus doesn't save himself so that he can be your savior. So that he can die for you and for me. The funny thing about this passage is, do you realize all the people around the cross that day, you have the women over here, they're weeping over this tragic sight. You have the soldiers who are mocking Jesus and they're casting lots for his clothing. You have two other criminals up here on each side and one of them is saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I know I'm about to die. The other one is mocking him. The ironic thing is the only people that are gathered around that understand they need saving are the two criminals. And the one doesn't realize that the guy who's next to him is indeed the one who can save him, even though he's dying on the cross. There's only one person in that scene that day who understands that he needs saving. That man, for him, it's crystal clear. And sometimes in life, it's crystal clear, isn't it, that we need saving? 
I mean, sometimes people, they just get to the end of their rope. They hit what we call rock bottom in life, and they realize that there's nowhere else to go rather than crying out to God. They understand they need saving. Maybe you've heard the name Miles McPherson. He is the defensive back for the San Diego Chargers. As a young man, he had a dream of playing in the NFL, and he, always, he said, I always knew I was going to make it. He said, I played in high school, did well. He said, but I didn't get a big scholarship to an NCAA Division I school. He said, they didn't look at me. He said, I didn't get into a football program until a Division III school. He said, but I played my heart out in that school. My coach, he believed in me, said he would take video and photos, send them to every single professional team there was because he thought I was good enough to play the NFL. He said, nobody listened. He said, Finally, my senior year, he said, I was named an All-American. He said, there are about seven teams that said, you're an All-American, send us footage, we'll watch what you do, and we'll see if we're interested. He said, that got me into a training program. He said, eventually, I got drafted. He said, I can remember the first day I walked out on the field. He said, when you're in high school and then you're in college, your dream is to make it to NFL, and then the day comes when you walk around the people that you see on TV. They've got the football cards made after them and their names are plastered on the back of shirts and people wear their names around town. He said, I was walking among the people I looked up to and admired and I was now one of them. He said, I can remember after practice one day, we went back to the hotel, said back to the room. The guy said, hey, why don't you join us? We got a party tonight. He said, I walked into there. He said, lo and behold, in the middle of the table was cocaine. He said, I looked at the guys and they're all snuffing cocaine. And he said, well, they're professionals. They're making millions of dollars. It's not hurting them. He said, I guess if I want to fit in, he said, I'll just make sure I use a little bit. He said, I used a little bit that day. He said, I never dreamed. He said, it grabbed a hold of my throat and put me in submission to it for the next several years of my life. He said, one day, he said, I was snorting cocaine. I started at 8 o'clock at night. And I kept snorting until 5 a.m. in the morning, just hoping I could fall asleep somehow. He said, I couldn't go to sleep. He said, I just kept snorting cocaine. He said, I didn't know what to do. He said, I'd heard about my teammates. He said, they always talked about Jesus and the power of Jesus to save and to heal people. And he said, finally, kneeling at that table with cocaine up my nose, he said, I called out, Jesus, will you save me? And he said, by God's grace, that moment, he said, he took away my desire for cocaine. Okay, for cocaine, and he said, by the faithfulness of God, I live drug-free today. Sometimes people reach rock bottom, and I don't know why God delivers some and doesn't deliver others, but sometimes we reach rock bottom, and you don't have to convince us. It's like being crucified on the cross next to Jesus. You know you need the Savior. You're like, there's nowhere to go. I'm dying here. God's got to help me out. And you understand that, but the the scary part is this, that there's only two guys who know they need saving. Only one of them realizes that Jesus is the Savior. But everybody else, everybody else standing around, they don't know they need saving. They don't realize that they need it. The women, they're weeping. Jesus is like, don't weep for me. You should be weeping for yourselves. You don't understand what's coming. The soldiers, they're crucifying Jesus. And Jesus, he's saying, it's not me. He said, I'm praying for you, that God would forgive you because you don't understand what you're doing. Most of the people, they don't know they need saving. And the scary part is, that is what is often true in life. Most of us, if life just hums along and, 
and we're getting by. Maybe not as good as we'd like to be. Maybe the car's not quite as nice as we want it to be, or the income's not quite as padded, or the kids are struggling a little more than we like in school, but we're getting by. We're making ends meet. We're putting one day after another, and, and life is getting by. Then pretty much we assume we're making it. We don't need saving. And Jesus says, you're wrong. Rosalind Picard, she is the head of a department at MIT in Massachusetts. She is a very accomplished woman. And she says when, I was, when she was a kid in grade school, she realized that she was smart. She said, as early as grade school, when I was a voracious reader, a straight-A student, I identified with being smart. And I believe smart people didn't need religion. As a result, I declared myself an atheist and dismissed people who believed in God as uneducated. She said, as a young person, I tried to make extra money. As a young girl, I said, the way girls often do that is they babysit. Said, so I had jobs babysitting for different people. One of, the fav- one of her favorite people to babysit for was a young couple. He was a doctor. She was a professional both highly educated, intelligent people who had two young kids, and she would go and babysit for them. Well, she was dumbfounded the day they said, hey, would you like to come to church with us? And Rosalind couldn't believe it. She said, how could these smart, intelligent people go to church on Sunday? She said, Sunday rolled around, I called them up and said, I'm sorry, I'm not able to go, I got a stomachache. She said, you try lying to a doctor a medical doctor, every Sunday he invites you to church coming up with another physical ailment. But they said they finally figured out she wasn't interested in going. So she said they came around, they said, well, how about this? said, have you ever read the Bible? She said, they said, you should start reading the Bible. You know, it's the best-selling book of all time. And she thought from it, she said, you know what? If I'm going to be a well-educated person, I probably should read the Bible. It is the best-selling book of all time. Said, I should probably know what's in it. Said, so I started reading it. She said, the weirdest thing happened, and she felt when I read the Bible, she said, I felt like somebody was talking to me. Well, she went off to college. In college, she met up with an old friend who had been in a, uh, in a program, in an honors program with her in high school, and they would study together. And one day, this friend said, hey, how would you like to go to church? She said, you go to church too? And she said, oh, she said, but this time, should I've been reading the Bible, should I understood a little bit about it, I'd taken a class in Buddhism and Hinduism and all these different religions, and she said, I was curious what was going on. And so I said, yes. She said, I got to the church service, she said, I sat down, she said, the pastor, he was so-so, and then he made this comment. He said, who is the Lord of your life? And she said, I knew the answer to that. She said, I was, I'm a straight-A student. I'm on the way to work in an MIT. She said, I am at the top of the class. She said, nobody touches me. I'm the captain of my ship. And she said, in that moment, she said, I realized I am the Lord of my life. And in that moment, she said, I realized Jesus wants to be the Lord of my life. And she said, I took a gamble. She said, I wasn't even sure if I believed in God, but I said, God, if you're there, I want your son Jesus to be the Lord of my life. And she said, that day, she said, life went from being two-dimensional and black and white to being three-dimensional and in full color. And she said, I didn't lose my appetite for academics and for knowledge. She said, now I wanted to ask tougher questions and learn more about this world God had made and to discover more about all the intricacies of it. She discovered in that moment a woman who thought, I don't need a savior. She discovered she needed saving. Here's the hard truth we have to swallow. If Jesus doesn't save himself so that he can be your savior and my savior, the hard truth is this. You and I need saving. You might not think it. 
Your bank account may not show it. Your family might get along well enough that you think we don't need it. It doesn't matter what it is, but God knows that deep in the recesses of your soul, you need saving. And the good news is this. Jesus stayed on the cross so that he could be your savior. That like the women in Jerusalem, he could deliver you from the judgment of God. That like the soldiers who crucified him, he could forgive you of your ignorant sins. And like the thief on the cross, he could give you the promise of paradise. Jesus stayed on the cross because he wants to save you. The question is this, is he your savior? Have you asked him to save you? Because he wants to do that today. And all you have to do is to ask him to be the savior and the leader of your life. And he will forgive your sins. And he will make you a part of his eternal family. Will you bow your heads with me? Maybe you've never asked Jesus to be your savior. And today you understand that you need saving. I'm just going to invite you where you're at. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to come forward. I'm just going to invite you to pray where you're at and ask God to save you. That's why Jesus died on the cross and rose again. If you don't know what to say, you can just copy this prayer. Maybe put it in your own words. But say, Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I am a sinner if for nothing else than not having faith in you. I believe Jesus died and rose again to be my Savior. And today I'm asking, Jesus, will you come and save me and guide my life? I want you to be my Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.